Welcome to the Change in Nature podcast. Inspiring people, inspiring change. For more episodes of this podcast, as well as retreats and offerings to help you change in nature, visit our website, changeinnature.org. So I'm here at Embercombe with the founder, Matt McCartney, and Embercombe's a 50-acre small holding in Devon, and it does a range of programmes for both young and old people to help inspire courageous action for in this world. And I came here, first came here about three years ago as a participant in the Journey programme, which is one of their flagship programmes. And it kind of hit me like a thunderbolt at the end. I really was put in touch very strongly with the change I wanted to create in the world. And it really helped me put myself in touch with my meaning and my purpose. And it does that for many, many people. So um, it's a real honour to have this interview with you, Mac. Thank you so much for no, thank you. taking part. And mm. I'd like to start the interview by asking that you've helped so many people find meaning and purpose in their life, but what, in your journey, has helped you find meaning and purpose in your life? Okay, so um, I guess that, well, I was going to say we're all different and we all have different stories. Sometimes maybe they're not so different, maybe there are sort of... um, I know there are clutches of the similar story, but mine was, I think, on the lines of um, very early in my life, deeply touched by nature, uh, utterly transported to everything that I could possibly have wanted in that early childhood of the smell of earth, the feel of trees, the endless trees that we climbed to great heights, you know, the, the, the underground tunnels that we dug, the fires that we had, the melting lead and trying to make coins and all sorts of rather dangerous chemical experiments that we undertook, which caused explosions, making cannons, firing cannonballs. Uh, we just, you know, we just, we had... We, I mean, born uh, in Malvern, but a lot of my early childhood in um, Sutton Coalfield, which is quite near to Birmingham, so it doesn't feel like exactly the most likely place, but right by Sutton Coalfield is this place called Sutton Park, and it's uh, thousands of acres, uh, I'm not sure how many thousand, but quite a few thousand acres of um, wildish land that Henry the, Henry VIII used to hunt wild boar and deer and stuff. And we would just uh, clear off for the day. My mum would give us some food and in our little pack and with the dog we'd take off and we wouldn't turn up until late that same day. And it was safe and it was okay to do so. Swimming in lakes, damming up streams, doing things which probably were extremely dangerous, but um, we didn't really feel it like we were allowed, you know, it was okay. Everybody was doing it, I suppose. So deeply touched and and um, 
I think it went in really deep. I was a very impressionable child, but it did everything for my imagination, for everything that I loved. It held mystery for me. It held excitement and adventure. It held uh, beauty and gentleness and quietness. It, it encompassed everything, really. And then, you know, like it all stopped. Sort of thing. And, uh, in my particular case, I was sent off to boarding school, but I was sent off to boarding school because I was uh, uh, going uh, very likely to fail my 11 plus and therefore not be able to go to the grammar school and the secondary modern school that was the option um, was a pretty poor school and the f I think my parents' feeling was that they had no um, faith that I would arise out of that in any way the better for the experience. And they also knew that I would feel deeply shamed uh, by it. So I was sent away. And um, it just so happened that, you know, walked into an incredibly harsh situation. I don't know that it was for every year, but in this particular year, yeah, it really was. And so after that, you know, then all, everything to do with sort of... Uh, felt so betrayed really by um, the leadership was shown I, I, I could you could see that it was um, that it was uh, corrupted you know that there was no um, that the whole piece that I was being offered was a story of, that was false and inauthentic and I got very saddened by that so then that kicked me off into leaving and you know and the whole hippie thing at that time and and I think I was just rootless. So I won't go through the whole story, but all kinds of lostness until really um, we started making these journeys into the mountains of Snowdonia with the specific intent of listening and seeking guidance from the mountains. And um, and it was assisted by psilocybin mushrooms, you know, which was big at that time. But um, we used to fast for a week or something and then take uh, psilocybin mushrooms and we'd go into the worst weather we could find. Storms, snowstorms, to the highest peaks. And it was a crazy element to it, but I also... Um, it had a phenomenal effect upon me of confirming all my uh, feelings and intuitions and reconnecting me back to that uh, very blissful early years. And somewhere along there came the decision to seek indigenous teachers, people who could teach me about the things that I really loved. So that then began that whole story. So that the route was a very painful one. And I would say even subsequently it's been, there's been an enormous amount of joy and an enormous amount of wonder and an endless amount to be gratitude, grateful for. But it has not been, um, it's not been some fairy story of sitting there in the lotus position meditating, you know, and receiving enlightenment and not least, uh, Andy, if I can just say, you know, I. I need to take account of the man that I am, and the man that I am is many is multifaceted. 
So my spirituality and my finding myself has to encompass all of me. You know, the 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 physical part of me, you know, that that actually loves, you know, the rush of excitement and the you know, all the sort of the stories when I was young of, of the sounds of battle and all those sort of things were very much with me. Uh, my sexuality, you know, that the, how could I possibly leave that outside? I had enough of that with that school, you know. The um, the uh, church that we used to go to when I was children and the obvious truth that whatever it was that had inspired its building had long since left. How do I pull that in, you know? food in other words living strong so it's been a journey I mean it's been pretty fierce really so getting lost and finding a way and not giving up and remain and making some kind of pledge that whether anybody else was walking this path, and at times, of course, even though, of course, many, many, many people are, but at times it felt pretty lonely. Uh, I would not, I would not um, cease to try and walk on that path. It wouldn't be conditional upon others walking alongside. And it, just you saying that, it reminds me of the title of your book, your first mm -hmm. book. Finding Earth, Finding Soul, mm. the invisible path mm. to authentic leadership. And I'm yeah. wondering to what extent that path is invisible. Well, you know, the invisible path, I, 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 yeah, I received that, whatever we call it, that image, that teaching in a, a really profound dream, sort of dream that maybe you get in my case, every now and then, I'll have a dream that just completely rocks me, and it's like something has been uh, shown me that is quite um, extraordinary. And the invisible path was that. So quickly, just to mention it, in the dream, I'm standing on a dartboard or somewhere like that, and I'm alone, and it's just all these uh, rounded hilltops stretching to the distance with heather and, and bracken and stuff. And um, its um, sunset has has been and gone, and now the land is slowly is, is going into the, becoming dark. And as I'm there, suddenly the hair on the back of my neck in the dream just rises, and I become completely infused with the feeling that something very important is going to happen. And as it becomes really dark. Um, suddenly I begin to see this faint glowing path reveals itself and it was the it was the knowing in that point that that path was revealing itself to me to help me make sense and to understand what the challenge I was being offered was because it's not easy to walk uh, if you like a spiritual path when let's say that you can't find anybody else who even thinks that it's a valid way of doing such a thing because you know there were all the people following different gurus there were people following different philosophies there were churches and things but I'm mine is completely homemade if you like it's just a sort of 
So it was an enormous validation. And I could feel that the path was uh, embodied love, really. And it was saying, um, your task is to walk this path that you cannot see. And every time your feet are on that path, you will feel deeply happy and you will feel all those good things that you know when you're on aligned with life's intentions. And every time you wander off that path, it will be painful to various degrees. But you are not told you have to walk that path, you are given the choice. No matter how far away you stray off the path, you are always only one step away from recovering it, which was just an amazing feeling. And and walking on, uh, yes, and at night time, however, when you sleep, you reconnect with the path. So in that period of resting and restoration that we call sleep and in the dreaming, you sort of re unite and connect with the deep impulse of that path and you can see it but in the daytime as the light comes up it just disappears and what I loved about it was that it, it sort of showed me everything is it's like what those Native Americans described to me everything simply sits with the choices that we make so walking the invisible path then becomes just simple questions of um, of deep listening, of noticing, of observing myself and when I'm behaving in a way that is somehow discordant with, with whatever's around. It's, um, it's learning to trust myself. It's doing whatever I can to allow my own ego to... Um, be rested and, and sort of less clamoring for attention and more on the lines of everything's fine. Um, it, it's, uh, it's just recognizing I have choices all the time. How do I respond to this situation? How do I negotiate with this particular thing? Um, who am I is just constantly reflected. I think there's, there's these millions of choices that meet it, that fit, fill every day describes our journey along that path. I can't quite remember where the question, where the question your question was taking me, but that was the, the invisible path is all of those things. And what's so amazing is that subsequent to that, um, one of the team here at Stefan discovered a poem that somebody had written which talks about exactly the same thing. And even John O'Donoghue in his poem Banach talks about a, a pathway of a yellow moonlight that will guide you safely home. So I'm sort of, you know, I, I don't wish to sort of, uh, sort of foist this on everyone else, but as far as I'm concerned, this is not some sort of abstract, neat idea that kind of, I, I think it's a phenomenon and a re as real as anything else is real. And I'm, I'm very happy to sit with that and allow that to be so, if you, if you like, for me. I suppose there's, there's times where you can get lost 
from your path. And as you say, there's, mm. you're just always one step mm. back, which feels really reassuring. Mm. But also seems to me that sometimes it's just so hard to see. So sometimes you kind of know where you want to get to, but it's really, you're kind of maybe faced with a dilemma and it's really hard to see yes. the path. Well, it is, and that's the thing you see, because challenge and difficulty and, and this, this fact that each of us is made up of all kinds of things, but certainly some of them are quite contradictory. You know, we may be a very kind and gentle, loving person, and it's quite possible that we also have quite a violent and, and um, resentful aspect as well. We have so much that is all part of us. So it is difficult. But that's... It's nature. It's, it's everything that life is. And, and life, you don't need to look for too long to see uh, limitless sort of beauty and extraordinary wonders and the most terrifying cruelty and terrifying, um, you know, pain and the whole thing. Even at a very basic level, you know, we love, you know, we love this little bird that, has its nest and its fledglings. I was watching on Spring Watch, you know, a few weeks ago, and and then along comes a great, spo- greater spotted woodpecker, and they they eat meat, you know, they're omnivorous, so it pecked the hole open and then went in there and took the babies out, and of course it was taking the babies out to feed its own babies, and and you know the rats, everything we call vermin, you know, it's just got a family, isn't it? Really, it's just so. Life in, in the nature of life is just written these this it's like the true nature of wild is certainly not just only beautiful, good and lovely from our human perspective. It is everything. It is the raw molten cauldron of creation and everything is held within it. Well we have this capacity to make sense of these things and so and what we tend to do sometimes is is respond in a very unintelligent way by calling some things bad and some things good, which is so ridiculous. And we come up with things like even why, how could God have allowed such a thing to happen? I've always found that one of the most mindlessly sort of, sort of um, you know, like, have, have you thought about this at all? Like, God is not a human being. God doesn't sit there. If, you know, if we even embrace the concept of God... God doesn't sit there saying, I'm going to try and be good today, or, you know. It's just creation. And contained within it is everything. It's my... So, it is very difficult, but it responds well to um, held intention over long periods of time. And the willingness to attend to the things that are calling out to be attended to, which most of us are extremely reluctant to do, including myself, you know. The, it's like when I began getting those panic attacks and I was 50 years old. You know, I didn't respond well. I didn't think, oh, okay, you know, so clearly there's something buried in my, in this person called Mac that is there's something unresolved and, and all the rest of it and I need to go and try and find out what it is. No, I hoped it would go away, you know. I just hoped it would go away and, and then I and then having 
realised that that wasn't going to work too well. I thought, well, I'll, I was then I hoped for a quick and easy fix. So I tried all these things first until one day just sort of slumped in feeling sorry for myself. I thought, oh, God, like, I suppose, suppose I need to see somebody and explore it. But that felt difficult because there are therapists galore who, you know, probably couldn't help me at all. And maybe also there are some out there who really could. So I think the invisible path took me to the person that could because I really lent into it and I thought I have to meet this and I, what I need is someone with the skill to be able to see through, you know, who could see the wood for the trees as it were. And when I met with that person, even the end of the first session I felt different, the end of the se second session I knew that I was on my way. And I carried on for another two years uh, because it was so rich and rewarding, but in terms of the panic attacks, they'd gone after the first two months. And if I can just say also, if we even if we take the a little child, you know, my my little boy is full of life. He's just, you know, he he spends a lot of time roaring, like a like some kind of monster, and you know, he's he he's walking around the house like this, you know, and he's he just. He's so full of life. He gets enraged with his car when it doesn't do what he wants it to do. He he, and he's an emotional roller coaster the whole time. You know, it's just like whoa. Wandir and I, my, my wife and I, completely sometimes like, geez, look at the level of intensity in this guy. It's just like something else altogether. And as and as a result, of course, he makes his own life much more difficult in all kinds of different ways. So what is important for that child is that he is loved. And I think that's the thing for all, you know, we need to have experienced love. It's very hard for people when they have not experienced the depth of love they need to, they needed when they were little, very little. But I think if we have, then somewhere deep within us is the resource to meet all these things. And it's not to say that it's not there for those that didn't, but it's a hell of a lot harder I would say so we we look at him wonder and sometimes speculate on how his life will be and all we know is that he needs to he needs to be validated he needs to know that he was loved he needs to be appreciated and this will give him the basic framework around them this is the same as the adult really I think we we are very young in our nature forever really that connects me from to what you said at the start, really, that you started with your childhood, mm. and I could really sense that feeling of the wildness mm. and the beauty and love you felt for nature, and that somewhere along the way you got a bit lost from that, you see, yeah. Yeah. and that this path, in a way, is a reconnection. Yeah. Is that... That's right, Andy, and I mean, I, I would just say, you know, our society is so utterly... It, at, at many profound levels, dysfunctional, I would say. You know, what would you do with a child like that? You know, the, the child that I was when I was little. You know, you would have said, you know, you would have, you would not have forced them into some kind of awful 
process that goes on for another 10 years sort of thing, you, you would be inquiring, what does this child need in order for, uh, in this case, him to become, you know, reach his potential? We are educating people to fit into a system that is deeply flawed at its most fundamental and basic levels. You know, speaking with, uh, hearing a guy called Oren Lyons, who's a, a, an elder and teacher within the uh, um, Iroquois nation of tribes, saying how they watch the children play, the elders watch children play, and they pick out and they, they see who they, how they are, and they discuss them and talk about them, and then they try to make sure that they will bring those individual children what they all need and they're all loved, you know. And then you take something like the Kogi Indians and their purpose of a human life. This is where this is how bad it is, okay? We have not we have long since, I think, abdicated from the question of what is the purpose of a human life. And when the Kogi answer that and say to care for all living things in me goes, Oh yes, you know that I mean, maybe there's other possibilities, but that feels pretty good. You know, what would be most likely to raise children and young people and, and, and indeed a principle around which businesses and governments and churches and universities and everything, if we were to take to care for all living things? Pretty good, don't you think? I can't understand, you know, why would we not do that? Karen Armstrong, so a religious scholar, uh, wrote, uh, actually gave her TED Global talk, and she just said, um, you know, this teaching of Jesus Christ, do unto others as you would have done to yourself, uh, actually came from Confucius. But she said, if we were just to take that one principle, forget everything else, and just say, do unto others as you would be done to yourself. There's an awful lot wrapped up in all of this, but uh, for me, any whatever way ahead we have for us, it must be about deep kinship with nature, because it's in this that we find uh, every, you know everything that it's where we've come from, and it holds us now. And in that peaceful relationship with nature and the understanding of nature, without trying to make it pretty it up but the understanding that th that we belong to this, we are part of that family. I don't know, uh, just out of the camera shot, but just down there under the chair for while I've been talking was with this Robin. So when we say, how do we create things like, how do, how do we feel this kinship with nature? Really big for me now is uh, the feeding of my, the little birds that come near the cabin and uh, the unhappiness I felt when I had to move from my home which is uh, 30 meters away which which we had to sell and the feeling of the birds that I had fed for the last several years I would no longer be able to feed but then the cabin got built here and I suddenly thought well actually the birds are the same birds you know 
And as I put up the bird um, table, I suddenly thought they were coming so close, I thought, I, thought, I think they, they would eat from my hand. So I just one day spontaneously put some food and held my hand out, and this robin just came and landed on my hand. And now every morning uh, they visit, feeds from my hand, maybe half a dozen times, and he lands and sits there, looks around as something. And then his partner, or his or her partner, comes along. But they are a bit more cautious. So they do this hummingbird thing. Uh, but, you know. And I think the chaffinch will come soon. And I think, you know, they will all... So, how does... Why is it important? Because the feelings that it brings up in me are just so like I'm trusted. You know, this, this rather dangerous human being that I am, who's done so many things and, um, you know, is, is not entirely nice, <laughs> though I have my saving graces, but, you know, I'm trusted by these little creatures. And it's like a blessing every time they feed from my hand. It's just a blessing. And I, and I now this is, this is my morning practice. I, you know, irritate my family by saying in the weekends I've got to get across to Emiko, so I've got to just go, you know, do this first. Um, I just think of how many children, adults, Imagine sitting with a some somebody in business whose decisions influence a lot and say, you know, every morning, you know, let this little bird come and feed from your hand. What is it? What is it? How do you feel? What is it teaching you? What is the story it's sharing with you? What do you see? You know, I think it teaches about responsibility, about appreciation. Of lovely of loveliness, it teaches us about how so much that is extraordinary is happening right under our noses, but we're not aware of. For it, because I got to know where the nest was and where the fledglings were, and I saw the fledglings, you know, and, I, and gradually I start to understand the whole thing that's going on around me, which I had been oblivious to, really. Um, yeah. I love it. Over this next ten years, I'd just like to go more and more and more and more and more into this, you know, because um, it, I feel graced when I'm in that place. Is that something people tend to forget, of just doing things they love? You know, you meet a lot of people who are trying to live a full life, and do you feel that Sometimes the answer can be that simple, of just doing things you love. Yes, but taken at a fairly profound level. So at a shallow level, it's doing whatever I want to do that pleases me. And it's, uh, I suppose, potentially selfish and it's not generous. But at its more profound level, yes. Because I think, you see, it is natural. That's why you would observe that in, in, 
indigenous people the reverence that they have for the animals they kill, for their food, the the understanding that they the of the privilege of a life on earth, the the sort of overwhelming um, beauty of observing the shifting of the seasons and learning the language because the more time you spend in nature and with 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 all these beings you will begin to understand the language so you know as you know like when the fox has entered the glade because the calls are coming you know you know um, that the uh, you know that things are about as you hear the crows and then you look at and you and you know that sound and so you know that there are buzzards or something of that kind around and you suddenly realize there's a whole language of everything so love for me when you doing things you love is about somehow at its more profound level is submitting somehow to the this piece of joining the family of life so it doesn't mean I indulge every whim of mine I want this I want that I want this sort of thing it's it has at its heart generosity and giving and care of others and but it's not just that either because then we start to stray rather close to martyrdom as it were in some ways so it is you know have needs you know, it's like this whole, much more whole, embraced thing. But truthfully, we do make decisions about our life's trajectory based on things which, are, which, you know, because we think that this is the right step in our career, uh, because we fear what others might say, because we don't like to feel that we're a failure, um, that it's better to put up with something that's really unsatisfactory than risk losing whatever it is and then having nothing. We admire successful people, but our definition of success is so weak, you know, and so one-dimensional. I think I was a bit dismissive in younger years when I used to look at families with children and I see that it, it, it sometimes seemed to me that that's all they think about and that's all they're doing. Uh, obviously, now that I'm rather in that position, you do get a different take. And then you start to see it in a slightly different way and see it as a rather more meaningful, honourable thing. I think I always did at some level, but it's different. But I also know that if my life was only that, that I, had, I, I do need, whether it's a good thing or not, I do need an outlet for the energy that I have to try to make things different in this world beyond that goes outside of, say, my family. And we're all made differently. So we have to work these things out ourselves and there are plenty of ways of giving, creating and building a really beautiful life that doesn't involve children as well. I think one really effective way you've brought that message to a wide audience, including to business, is this concept of a children's fire mm. and it was a teaching you received from um, indigenous cultures mm. do you want to say what yeah. the children's fire is yes 
See, we've been at this business of trying to harness ourselves, our intelligence, our creativity, our our energy, the the these hands that can do all these extraordinary things, the powerful brains that we have. And this is not a new thing, you know. It's been going on forever. So. Uh, the, the the story as it was related to me said you know long time ago um, ca- chiefs of the, uh, the tribe just like leaders now in our society were scratching their heads and thinking you know how do we do this you know because we've observed that uh, when you know, uh, you, you can take a really a, a lovely person who's demonstrated many good qualities of leadership and then you give them some power and then you give them more power and then you tell them how great they are and, and suddenly their behaviour begins to shift and change because very few of us are able to, with, to hold the weight of success and the weight of being seen and later possibly even revered. You know, it's, it's a very heavy load for people to carry. How do we create leaders who will understand that the pledge that they have made is that as leaders and in wielding the power that they wield and making the decisions that they make, that all of these are directed by the desire to do the best thing for the people and not for themselves. Because this is what we're wrestling with right now, isn't it, really? I mean, even right now, you know, we have probably, we, f- we look at our many of our leaders, whether in business or politics or wherever, and we at least have the question in our heads, is this, is this actually for the best benefit or outcome of, or is it something else? You know? So they were trying to work out, what can we do? What can we do? And somehow but nobody knows how this idea came up that every time we sat in council uh, the chiefs of the tribe you know this little fire would be built in the middle of the circle of chiefs and we call it the children's fire and uh, and every chief would have to make a pledge to the children's fire that no law no decision no action nothing of any kind would be permitted to go out from this council of chiefs that would harm the children. Which, give us a handle on this, so we could imagine um, if we asked a business to do this, saying you know, no, no decision, no action, no product, no, no sort of sourcing of materials, no, uh, no investments, no nothing, 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 any kind will be permitted that will weaken or compromise the generations that will come after us in the future. If that was taken at a very serious and real level, the impact. I mean, I mean, I reckon it would bring an awful lot of businesses to a standstill, wouldn't it? Because they'd start saying, "Well, we've been making all these fizzy, sugary drinks all these years. The weight of evidence is overwhelming, and we actually always knew it anyway that it's harming the health 
badly harming the health of children. I mean, you would bounce off it, wouldn't you? You'd say, this, is, this, this stinks. It has no integrity in it. If you're a big energy company, you wouldn't be dragging your heels with alternate renewable energies. You'd be saying it is absolutely obvious that we have to. If you're an economist, you'd be saying the only kind of economy that makes any sense is a circular economy. If you were an educationist, you know, you'd be saying, let's come back to this, you know, what are we actually trying to do? Isn't it, isn't it, we're not trying to create sort of this stream of of employees for organizations or whatever. We're trying to create whole, well-balanced, peaceful, contributing, happy citizens. So the Children's Fire said this because it it recognized that this is the great one of the great dangers of every time people hold power is that they forget for whom it is that they should be using that power and they tend to serve themselves uh, later or, or later I say later but or from a different source came the idea of seven generations which is no 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 decision is made that cannot take stand the law of seven generations. In other words, if we make this decision, what can we anticipate would be the impact and effect over seven generations? If it can pass the seven generation rule, it's likely to be fairly sound. Children's fire was exactly the same uh, principle. And the other aspects of this were when Sometimes people get confused because they think it's literally all about children. It is about children, but it's also about what children symbolise. And children symbolise the future. They symbolise the hope of the people. They symbolise everything that is, that is in which we invest to create a good future. And the other thing is that when this law was created, it did not was never intended to apply only to human children, but to the young of all kind. Which then brings it back to the Kogi idea to care for all living things. And since for the Kogi and most indigenous peoples everything is alive, whether it's a rock, a stone, wind, it becomes a completely um, encompassing, prayerful. Now people being people, it'll still be a mess. (laughs) but it gives at least the opportunity and to to end and I'd like to ask if you had one piece of advice for people looking to lead a courageous life and to living a life that fully comes alive what what would you say to them? Well, it's a risky thing to say because I think a lot of us um, don't really know what it means, but I think to trust your intuition. It It will take us down the invisible path. We have to remember that it is normal and expected that we will wander off the invisible it, somebody consciously and deliberately says, I will walk the invisible path, knowing that they will wander off it because we are young and we're learning and we learn as we go off the path 
stub our toe, fall over, get upset, find our way back again. But as we become more and more self-aware and listen to those quiet voices inside us that really know the truth or a tr truths and become more attentive to them and that we can separate that out from conf conflicted issues to do with an unmet childhood or an unhappy marriage or whatever it is then I think we will, we will find a way and whether that does not necessarily lead to a good uh, what we call a good place but it might well lead us into the situation from which we will receive whatever it is that we need to receive at that point. So it's a very qualified uh, answer, I think, based on the idea that some of us use intuition as a, um, a permission to do whatever we feel like doing somehow. It's not quite the same thing. Oh, thank you, Matt. It's been really inspiring. Mm. And I also appreciate how much clarity you bring to what can often be a really complex and muddy and mm. you know invisible place that people mm. are trying to grapple with. And it seems that a lot of the things you've talked about really helps people bring clarity to that to their journeys. So Great. I really hope so. It's, uh, um, it f so many times, the things that will make us feel really good, we also refuse to do. Isn't it? Mm. I, I'm amazed by that. We, we have a, this sort of rather self-destructive mm. habit. I know that going for a walk will greatly, through the woods and just, just looking around and listening and sitting and everything will be do me a wonder. And yet I will many times uh, put that aside in order to flog off another email or two mm. uh, and I think we do that in our lives really we defer all the time and it seems to be born of this fear of... anyway in saying this I've just decided I will go for a walk later on today great <laughs> <laughs> right. well, thank you man thank you you have been listening to the change in nature podcast inspiring people, inspiring change. For more episodes of this podcast, as well as retreats and offerings to help you change in nature, visit our website, changeinnature.org.